This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 23rd, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. Today marks one year since President Obama signed the law now known as Obamacare. But what a difference a year makes. Its popularity has sunk and the law's constitutional pedigree is at best highly suspect. Attorney David Rivkin represented plaintiffs in Florida versus HHS, in which Judge Vinson found the entire act unconstitutional. Rivkin spoke at the Cato Institute on Monday. Now, tackling the substance first, the individual mandate, which is situated at the very heart of Obamacare, uh, violates, in my view, and uh, fortunately and more importantly, in the view of our uh, district court, the most fundamental constitutional principles. It violates centuries of settled case law. It is fundamentally different from every law regulating commerce that Congress has ever enacted from the first day of our republic up to now. Indeed, on the flip side of it, ladies and gentlemen, if a mandate were to be constitutional, much of the framers drafting of the original Constitution and of a Bill of Rights and all of Congress's, subsequent Congress's legislative work in the centuries hence, at best, is largely incoherent and at worst superfluous. Thus, I was not engaging hyperbole when I stated uh, during the December 16 oral argument before Judge Roger Vinson and our cross motions for summary judgment but the individual mandate in the act, charmingly referred to as PPACA, for those of you who like acronyms, which it is the key part, um, the single most unconstitutional piece of statutory language in our history. I also said at the time that it's one of the most badly drafted statutes I've ever seen, but that's a a different story, but I'll be happy to elaborate on that during Q's and A's. Now, of course, that's not how the administration feels. The Obama administration's bottom line is that Congress can indeed regulate commerce commerce by first forcing people to engage in it and then regulating their engagement. Under their thinking, doing nothing is an economic activity that Congress can reach through the Commerce Clause proper and then packaged into a more comprehensive statute like Obamacare, also under Vanessa Improper Clause. This argument and uh, some related points that are made in the process has at least five major constitutional consequences, all of which violate both the fundamental constitutional principles and centuries of settled case law. To begin with, this argument eviscerates the very core architectural principle of dual sovereignty, that is, the heart of our constitutional architecture, which is requires necessarily, if it's to have any meaning, that the federal government exercises only limited and enumerated powers while the states, in James Madison's famous words, possess, quote, residual sovereignty, unquote, often referred to as police power. Of course, regulating an activity, regulating people because they exist, not because of activities they engage to, but compelling them to act is the very essence of general police power. Another attribute of general police power is that unlike a regulation of individuals based upon their activities, their actions cannot be avoided. Nothing captures this distinction, this, this point, better than the fact that all one has to do, put yourself in a position of a person who is trying to decide whether to comply, given federal statute regulating a particular activity, let's say commodity, be it wheat or cannabis, um, could have said weed, but cannabis sounds a little more scholarly, is not to engage in that activity or do nothing with regard to the commodity and issue, and presto pronto, you just opted out of a federal regulatory vortex. The statute has nothing to do with you. You can go on with your life. By contrast, in the state of Massachusetts, requires old adults to be inoculated for smallpox, 
There's no opting out of that particular regulatory regime. If you're an adult, if you happen to be found within the borders of Massachusetts, you are stuck. It applies to you. Same, of course, is true with regard to such things as um, obligation to purchase hurricane insurance and various other things that states exercising general police power can do to you, whatever the policy merits of those schemes. Now, to justify claiming for itself this police power, federal government, in effect, argues that inactivity, specifically in our case, a failure by an individual to acquire a particular good or service, again, in our case, um, qualified particular type of, of medical insurance, is within the scope of a Commerce Clause because this inactivity can be linked, can be tightly linked to a discernible economic effect. Indeed, the most articulate version of this argument uh, was made in Judge Judith Kessler's uh, from District Court Bench in the District of Columbia, recent decision, which upheld the individual mandate, which essentially proceeded as follows. A failure to purchase insurance is a decision, which is no different than the decision to purchase insurance, and since both the purchasing and non-purchasing decisions, ladies and gentlemen, in the aggregate have a substantial economic footprint, they can be reached under the Commerce Clause, full stop. Now, it's an elegantly worded decision, quite frankly better than some other decisions that make the same point, but the argument is still fundamentally flawed. Now, leaving aside the fact that Judge Kessler and the administration are making some rather remarkable assumptions about human nature, I don't know about you, but uh, it's a bit of a surprise to me since not every aspect of our existence is driven by well-structured decisions, but leaving that little point aside, um, uh, there's a fundamental problem here because in a modern economy, every inactivity, every failure to purchase a good or service, or every failure to engage in a particular activity, let's say sleeping to the exclusion of working, has in the aggregate some, let's stipulate, pretty formidable economic consequences. Hence, there cannot be any judicially enforceable limiting principle found here, and all inactivities can be swept in under the Commerce Clause. Now, under this logic, the federal government is capable of exercising general police power, and the dual sovereignty system is pretty much dead, which may not trouble some folks, but at least when you try to sell it to the courts. Um, the government is understandably nervous about the uh, implications of this argument, that Congress can essentially regulate anything, so it's come up pretty early in litigation with a follow-up argument that it claims has a built-in limiting principle. What government is really making is a kind of plea of a court please, please uphold the statute. You have no consequences for the future. Nothing like this would ever happen again. Now, why is that? Well, and I quote the argument that the government has made innumerable times in their pleadings, in our case, in other cases, an oral argument, and the, argument, and the claim is, quote, the health care market is unique, close quote. But it ain't unique, not by a long short, at least as I hope to convince you. Now, the government has essentially adduced three claims relating to uniqueness, all of them false. First, it says that healthcare market is unique because everybody participates in it sooner or later. We even call it inevitability of consumption argument, but this is nonsense. Every existing market, including the market for luxury goods and certainly markets for necessities of life, features participation by sufficiently large number of folks over a sufficiently long period of time, otherwise those markets would be no more. Second, the government says, well, the healthcare market is unique because there is cost shifting. Well, what the hell is that? Well, that's the old thing about people visiting the emergency rooms and have no coverage, and they 
don't pay for services rendered, and the taxpayers and other patients wind up paying for it. Now, there are some economists who disagree with that. I'll actually direct your attention to an excellent piece in the Wall Street Journal the other day where several good economists argued that actually there's not that much cost shifting from uninsured to insured. But even if it were true, the cost shifting is ubiquitous, which is a fancy word saying prevalent in all of the other markets. Think about a fellow who defaults on his, on his credit card or his mortgage. Wow, systemic risk there. Or writes a bad check or declares a bankruptcy. What do you think happens? You'll pay. Um, indeed, the cost shifting is an inherent feature of all markets in a modern economy, and probably not even in a very modern economy, certainly in the 20th and 19th century economy, where credit, ladies and gentlemen, is extended at the front end to market participants where you don't pay cash in the barrel. So there's nothing unique about that. The third claim is that this market is unique because consumers, unless they're protected by this very wise government that has come up with a insurance purchase mandate can be completely wiped out because the medical care is so darn expensive. Perhaps true, but there's also nothing unique about this prospect. Sadly, but inevitably, there are numerous conceivable contingencies, which have unfortunately come about can pretty much wipe you on just as well. Losing a job often does. So does a catastrophic business failure that settles its owners with ruinous financial liability. So does addictive gambling, or maybe not addictive, just gambling. So does the use of addictive substances, or crippling depression, or debilitating disease that leaves us unable to work. Now, under the government's logic, the existence of those as potential calamities would seem to justify having Congress enact an all-purpose catastrophic insurance coverage purchase requirement. My favorite commercial, the AFLAC, kind of a comprehensive AFLAC, remember, goes, if you lose your job, you are sick, they're going to pay for food and rent and all the necessities of life. So we can all have a comprehensive AFLAC to cover us and make sure there's no cost shifting. But you know what? You want to need to go into those other markets to demonstrate the silliness, uh, absurdity of a government's uh, uniqueness arguments. I'll just stick with a healthcare market for a second. The government's definition of this market is so broad, so capacious encompassing as it does the consumption of all the medical goods and services, products, and all the arrangements can be used to pay, pay for them. That market alone can sustain an infinite variety of mandates under government logic. Now, why is that? Well, the proponents of Obamacare and its predecessors have often justified this exercise the way of bending the cost curve. How do you bend the cost curve? You require folks to purchase healthy foods, buy gym classes, why not mental wellness lessons, regular checkups? It would be very logical. So even if we're dealing with healthcare alone, this is not a unique mandate. There can be plenty of others that Congress would be able to enact in the future. So the bottom line here, as you might have discerned by now, that I don't believe that there's any viable limiting principle here. The federal government can force you to enter any market and rest assured whatever unique attributes uh, of this marketplace, this marketplace being healthcare market, have motivated this Congress to do so. In the future, future Congresses would discover some other crises and various markets that demand their intervention. David Rivkin is an attorney who represented plaintiffs in Florida versus HHS, challenging the constitutional basis of Obamacare. You can watch the full event from Monday at Cato.org.